We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Titus. Titus is toward the very end of your Bibles, and so you turn toward almost the very end, and Revelation's the last book in your Bible, and so if you start flipping backward from Revelation, eventually you'll come to Titus. Titus is right around 1st and 2nd Timothy. Uh, It's right before Hebrews to give you just a little bit of your bearings as you try to find Titus in your Bibles. We're going to be starting in chapter 2. In verse 1 here in just a second. One thing that we've said over and over again each week as we come to church, ever since the nine weeks that we had of not meeting together, is we're so thankful for your patience and your understanding as we go through this transition time because nothing's ideal, right? Nothing's ideal right now. Uh, the, The way that we meet on Sunday mornings is not ideal. The way that we can't do certain things is not ideal. The way that we can't have everybody in the church at the same time, not ideal. Can't hug each other. We can't fellowship like we want to. We can't shake hands. But we thank you so much for your patience. But more than that, let me say this. Thank you so much for your understanding and your level heads in a time where there are tons of emotions going around about division that everyone has and differing opinions that everyone has. Whether it be on politics or race issues or whether or not you should wear a mask in public. We have had zero issues with those things in our church. And it's not because we don't have differing opinions. We do. There are people in this church that don't share your opinions on whether or not we should be wearing a mask in public or, you know, whether or not we should be uh, shutting down the economy or not or whether or not, you know, political issues, blah, blah, blah. We don't all share the same opinions. But what unites us is this. We're coming around the same Bible every week. The same Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, just like in Paul's day, when he said, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Those are real differences. The Gospel doesn't do away with those differences. What it does is it unites those who have differences around a single idea, a single gospel, a single Lord. And so I want to thank you for the the level heads that you've had during a time where so many in our country are not having the same unity and the same level head. Today we're talking about adorning the gospel. That's the title of today's message, adorning the gospel. We'll get into what that means here in just a second, but if you remember, as we've talked about the book of Titus, the theme of the book of Titus as a whole is good works. Good works. What do your good works look like in your life? If you call yourself a Christian, do you allow what you believe to actually change your behavior, to actually change what you do, your good works? And so today, we're going to talk about how those good works may or may not adorn the gospel, depending on what your works are. Let's read through our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through verse 10. Paul writes... But as for you, he's talking directly to Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the gospel or the doctrine of God our Savior. So you see the, the word adorn there at the very end of our text, verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so I want to ask right off the bat, what does that mean? When we say adorning the gospel or adorning the doctrine that we believe, what does that mean? Well, let me put it to you with an illustration. Think about a bride getting ready for her wedding. On her wedding day, she is adorning herself for her husband on her wedding day, is she not? Adorning herself. Think about all the ways she does that. The dress, the makeup, the hair, the jewelry, these are all adornments meant to draw attention to her, to make her appealing and attractive, right? Now, the adornments don't change the thing that they are adorning, right? They don't change the, the woman herself, but they are outward adornments to draw attention to her and make her appealing. They adorn her. But picture this. What if, on the wedding day, the husband and the minister is at the front of the ceremony and everybody's there, everybody's ready, the, the bridal party has walked in, and all of a sudden the minister says, please rise. And what happens then? Well, the, the doors to the back of the church open, and the, the groom sees his bride for the first time that day. And so picture this happening. The doors of the back church open, and the groom looks up, and there's his bride that he hasn't seen all day, and she has on baggy pajamas with a hole in the rear end and a syrup stain all over her shirt, and her hair is tangled in knots, and her two-day-old mascara is streaked on her face, and she's wearing dirty house slippers. You know the ones that look like bunnies? They're dirty, and they're filthy, and they're matted. And she walks down the aisle with her dad, and as she gets up close to the groom, it's pretty clear she needs a shower. Now think about that in comparison to what we were talking about just a moment ago. Right? This is a picture right here of how our works adorn the gospel. Our works, our behavior, our lives either make the gospel appealing and attractive or they make it repelling and repulsive. Our works, our lives, our behavior, it either makes the gospel appealing and attractive to others or it makes it repelling and repulsive. And so we need to ask ourselves, do our works, does our behavior as Christians adorn the gospel or not? Notice what Paul says to Titus in verse 1 of the text. Look back at verse 1 with me. He says, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now that sounds very much like verse 1 of chapter 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. If you remember when we went over that, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul said, this is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And that faith and that knowledge, it says that faith and that knowledge accords with godliness. Or another translation might say it produces godliness. It leads to godliness. 
And so the same thing here in chapter 2, verse 1. Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what comes out of sound doctrine. The NET Bible, the NET translation, which is another good Bible translation, says, Titus, teach about the behavior that comes from sound doctrine. And so that's what he's saying. Titus, teach your people how to live out the gospel. That's what we're thinking about today. How do we live out the gospel? For those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, how do we behave in such a way to show off the gospel to the world in all its glory? Now notice also what Paul says in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. In verse 5, he's talking about older women training the younger women. And then look at the end of verse 5. So that the word of God may not be reviled. He says, younger women live in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. And so, there is a way to live that will cause people to revile or slander God's word. There's a way for Christians to live that could cause people to slander or revile God's word. In Romans 2.24, Paul talks about the hypocritical behavior of Christians. The hypocritical behavior of Christians, because of that, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles. And so, Christian, you are a picture of the gospel to those around you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are, whether you want to be or not, you are a picture of the gospel to those around you. And if you call yourself a Christian, and then you go out and you live in sin those around you will see the gospel as unattractive. They'll see it as unattractive. They'll start to say things like, well, he lives just like the rest of us, so I guess Jesus doesn't make a difference in your life after all. Or, she's a hypocrite. And if that's what Christianity produces, I don't want any part of it. I'd just rather be real and be authentic. Right? If we live in sin, that's what people will start to say because we are a picture of the gospel to those around us. But the flip side is also true. If you live a life of holiness, a life of compassion, a life of forgiveness, a life of self-sacrifice and love for others, well, then it's going to soften people's hearts. It's going to open people's hearts up to the gospel. It's going to adorn the gospel so that when it comes time to talk to that person about Christ or to invite them to church, you're going to find a heart that is much more open to those things than if it were the way before. Because they've seen your life. They've looked at your life and they say, that's what the gospel does. It makes you have a life like that, like him, like her. Today, right now, I can think of men and women who adorn the gospel. I can think of them in my mind. I've got real people in my mind right now. Some are even a part of this church. Some are from my life in other places. But people that adorn the gospel. I'll give you some examples, and I'm not going to mention their names. But I can think of one person who is so content, no matter what happens. Content always. No matter how little they have. And I look at that and I say, I want that. I want to have contentment like that in my heart. Think of another whose joy is so contagious, nothing can rob him of his joy. And it's contagious to others around him. And it's because of Christ. I know it's because of Christ. And it adorns the gospel. I can think of another person who never frets about things that don't matter because he's always thinking about eternity. And so the things that make the rest of us 
fret and worry, he's never concerned with them because he knows they won't matter in 10,000 years. So he's not worried. He's adorning the gospel. You can see what Jesus has done for him in his heart. I think of a couple that we know and how they acted through a long period of suffering and how they never got bitter and they never stopped being thankful to God. And through that suffering, they adorned the gospel. I think of a man who would give you the shirt off his back and he would do anything for others. And when people think of him, they think that is a man who serves. That is the man who gives himself for others. And finally, I can think of one person who is so gentle and compassionate with others, especially those who disagree with her, especially those who do not know Jesus. And she is constantly bringing people to Jesus because of that gentleness and compassion. They are adorning the gospel. And so that's what we're thinking about today. Now, as I read through our text, I hope you noticed this is a big long list of attributes and ways that Christians can adorn the gospel. And we don't have time to spend a little bit of time on each one of these attributes. If we did, I'd probably be able to give about 30 seconds to each one of them. We'd be racing through this passage. Don't have time for that this morning. So, here's my challenge to you today. Take 20 minutes out of your rainy Sunday and spend 20 minutes in Titus, 1, or Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. 20 minutes. And as you go through it, slowly ask yourself, what does it mean for me to be, for example, sober-minded or dignified? What does it mean for me to be not a slanderer? That's in verse 3. What does it mean for me to, to be pure, to be submissive to my own husband if I'm a lady? What does it mean for me to, to show myself a model of good works? What would it mean for me to be sound in speech? to be well-pleasing, to be showing all good faith. What would it look like for you? I'd challenge you to do that today because we don't have anywhere near the time to go through every attribute in this list. But I will tell you, one thing we are going to hit on right now is something that Paul said three different times in those ten verses. Did you notice what attribute he mentioned three times in ten verses? Did you catch it? It's self-control. Self-control. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be self-controlled. Look at verse 5. Younger women are to be self-controlled. And look at verse 6. Younger men are to be self-controlled. Three times. This is important to Paul. You better believe. He mentions it three times in ten verses. So self-control is one of the ways that you can adorn the gospel as a Christian. Now, let's ask this question. Why Paul's insistence on self-control. Why does he insist on this so much? Well, do you remember last week how we talked about the island of Crete? What do we know about the island of Crete in Paul's day? Well, it was notorious for its immorality. The people there celebrated sin. They lived unapologetically in sin, and it was notorious as a place for that. This is a society that just gave full vent to all of their desires whether it be lust or greed or power or money or anger, just full vent. Like life is an unchecked quest for self-gratification and physical pleasure back then in the island of Crete. Now in a culture like that, self-control would have been a completely foreign idea. 
I mean, the people there who are not believers are thinking, self-control, why? So it would have been absolutely crucial for Titus to teach this to those who have come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a place like that. To teach them, the gospel changes you. To teach them, you are not just forgiven now, but you are called out. You are people that have been called out from the world. And just like they were then, so it is now. If you're a Christian, God has called you out. You know that's what the word holy means in the Bible? When you see the word holy, you are to be holy as God is holy, it means you're to be separate, called out from the rest of the world. You're to look different. People should see your life and see something different than everybody else. See something that's different than the rest of the world. And let me tell you, right now, in America, it's a great time for Christians to shine like stars, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. In a crooked and depraved generation, we shine like stars. We stick out like sore thumbs. It's a great time to be living out your faith because people will see it. You're called out from the world. You're called to be holy. And so they were then, so we are now. So Titus is going around saying, let's show the world what a wonderful change Jesus has made in our hearts. Let's show the world what it means to be holy, to be God's called out people. And so, let's ask, what is self-control? Now, self-control is not foreign to us. We, we know the concept. We have an idea of what that means. But it's good to actually analyze it, to not, not just assume that we're all thinking the same thing here. Self-control essentially means to not be controlled by your own fleshly desires. To not be controlled by your own desires, but rather to control them. That's what self-control means. In biblical language, this means we are not controlled by the flesh. Remember Romans 8.13 when Paul talks about if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Over and over again in the Bible, we hear the language that we are slaves to sin before we come to Jesus. Before we come to Jesus, we're slaves to sin. You remember reading this in the New Testament? Sin has mastery over us before Christ. We can't stop sinning without Jesus. In fact, before Christ, we don't want to stop sinning. If we're really honest with ourselves, our desires control us. Apart from Christ, we live according to the flesh. But when you come to Christ, when you come to Christ, He not only forgives your sin. But He gives you His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that comes to dwell inside of you permanently when you are baptized. And when the Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, the Spirit helps you to become someone that you could not become on your own. The Spirit helps you to become what you could not become on your own. You guys remember the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22? The fruits of the Spirit. We used to sing a song about this in grade school. The fruits of the Spirit, what are they? They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and there's nine. What's the ninth one? Self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Jesus not only gives us forgiveness, but He gives us the power to have self-control. He not only gives us forgiveness of our sins, but He gives us the power to defeat sin. 
in our lives when we come to Christ. There's a song that sometimes we sing here at the church, Rock of Ages. Remember that song, Rock of Ages? In the hymn, Rock of Ages, there's this line. It's beautiful and it's so true. It says, and the Rock of Ages, by the way, is Jesus. So it's talking about Jesus and it says, Be of sin the double cure. Double cure, right? What's the double cure? Save me from its guilt and power. What does that mean? Well, Jesus not only saves us from guilt, he reconciles us to God, he, he makes us right with God. He not only does that, but when you become a Christian, he saves you from the power of sin. He gives you the power to no longer be enslaved to sin. And so now, if you're a Christian today, if you're a Christian, you have the power to defeat sin. You have the power of self-control. You might not feel like it, but you do. You have that power. It's been given you already in Christ. And so now we have the power to control our own bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What does Paul mean there? He doesn't mean he's self-inflicting wounds upon himself. I beat my body. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about I discipline my body. I make it my slave. I keep it under control. Interestingly enough, when you become a Christian, now you're not a slave to your body. No, your body is a slave to you. When you become a Christian, you have the power to put your body, your flesh, into slavery. You have the power to control your desires. Self-control. In another place, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God for you your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So it's hard to explain, but before the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you just can't defeat sin. You guys remember what it was like to not be a Christian, those of you who have already crossed that bridge from death to life? Before Christ, you just can't defeat sin. You just can't. But once you come to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, slowly, not immediately, but slowly, you start to realize you can defeat sin. You actually have the power to defeat sin. It's a slow process. It's not like you come up out of those waters of baptism and all of a sudden you are just ready to never sin again. Now, slowly but surely, you start to realize you have the power. You can defeat sin. Slowly, you start to realize your desire for God, it slowly starts to override your desire for self-gratification and physical pleasure. Those of you who have been Christians for a long while, you understand this. You've experienced this. Your desire for God starts to override your desire for pleasure and self-gratification. Slowly you come to realize the pleasure you find in Jesus is so much greater and deeper and longer lasting than any pleasure that sin has to offer. And when you get that, that's the secret. That's the secret right there to self-control. The pleasure we have in Jesus is greater than any pleasure of sin. And when you feel that, when you experience that, then the little, small pleasures of sin don't look so enticing anymore. When you come to Christ, you have the ability 
to control yourself. Self-control adorns the gospel. And so if you live with self-control, you will adorn the gospel to the rest of the world. And they'll look at you and they'll say things like, that guy doesn't talk like the rest of us. Or she doesn't come do all the things that, that we do when we go indulge in sin. She doesn't indulge in sin like the rest of us. And yet, that guy, that girl, they, they seem happy. They seem content. What's up with that? I'd like to have that. Right? Our self-control adorns the gospel. It's just one way of adorning the gospel. There's, there's numerous things in here. I mentioned self-control because Paul said it three times. But again, take some time out of your Sunday today. Go through Titus 2 slowly and ask yourself, what does it mean for me to adorn the gospel in these ways? Now, interestingly enough here, Paul not only tells us how we can adorn the gospel in our personal lives, but he tells us how we can corporately adorn the gospel as a church. How do we adorn the gospel as a church? One of the greatest ways we can do that is through older men and women training younger men and women and teaching. Older teaching the younger. Look at verse 3 in your text. In verse 3 it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. And then it goes on to talk about how they are to train the young women and what in. But it's not just women, it's men too. The older generation in the church teaching the younger generation and investing intentionally in the younger generation is a way for the church corporately to adorn the gospel. Older people spending quality time with younger people, intergenerational discipleship and fellowship, older people sharing their wisdom, being invigorated by the zeal and energy of young folks. And it also works in reverse. Young people in humility, sitting and listening intently to the wisdom of the men and the women who came before, taking in their perspective, learning what truly matters and what doesn't, and seeing the hidden value of a cool head and a gentle, quiet spirit. You see, we live in a world where this doesn't happen. We live in a world where naturally people don't spend quality time with anyone outside their age group, unless it's like a family gathering. Really, for the world, the only time that people spend time with anyone outside their age bracket is during family gatherings, but even then it's almost superficial. But the church, the church is a beautiful picture of the way God intended the world to be. And if we can create a culture here of older people spending quality time with younger people, learning from one another, getting outside of our own perspective, then people will come into our gatherings, people will come into our fellowship and say, wait a second, what is that? I don't see that anywhere in the world. It's an adornment of the gospel. It makes the gospel attractive. A gospel culture in a church adorns the gospel and makes it attractive to those who see it. The church is the place for people to come in and see things happening that could not happen in the world because the world does not have the one thing that unites us all. Jesus Christ. And so older generations, discipling younger ones, intergenerational fellowship, it adorns the gospel. 
When I was in Owensboro, serving as a youth minister, my best friend in Owensboro, aside from my wife and my dad, my wife and my dad are just my two best friends, but, but aside from my wife and my dad, my best friend in Owensboro was a guy in his 70s named Ed. Okay, now Ed's going to listen to this sermon later. I know he is. So Ed, hi, I love you, brother. We've got to catch up because we haven't talked on the phone in a couple weeks. But my best friend was a man in his 70s. I'm in my 30s. There's about 40 years difference between us. But every Tuesday, I would go over to Ed's house. Ed's retired. Ed likes to cook. So Ed would cook me lunch every Tuesday. And then we'd sit down in Ed's living room. And we'd talk about our sins. We'd talk about our failures, our victories. We talk about our relationships, we talk about the Bible, we talk about the church, and we pray with one another every single Tuesday. And it came to where I just could not miss that. And the Lord knit our hearts together. I mean, it, it honestly, it felt to me like David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, although our, our ages were much different than David's and Jonathan's were. The Lord just knit our hearts together. And that started with me giving him a phone call and saying, hey, can, can I meet with you and just get to know you a little better? And I, I need someone to help me and hold me accountable for my life and my, my spiritual life, my walk with God. It started with a phone call. And so in the, in the service before this one, we have almost exclusively people 60 and above. And what I challenge them to do is to pick out a younger person in the church and give them a call and say, hey, I would like to meet with you for lunch. I'd like to get to know you a little better. Would you be willing to do that? I challenge them to do this. And I challenge them to do it outside their own family relationships, even though everybody at Columbia Christian Church is related. I, I challenge them to do it outside their immediate family, you know. But I challenge you guys to do the same thing. Contact a person who is outside your age bracket. Contact an older person in the church if you're younger. Give them a call and say, hey, listen, I, I'm young. I just would love to sit and get to know you and learn from your wisdom and, and learn all the lessons that you learned the hard way so I don't have to learn them the hard way and, and get your perspective on life and have you help me live this Christian life. Young people, you know what we're not good at? We're not good at humility, but that's exactly what you need. That's exactly what you need when you're young. And one of the greatest ways to get it is go sit next to an older person and just ask them to teach you. Ask them to share their wisdom with you. Ask them to tell you stories. And then sit and listen. And come back and tell me you don't get benefit from that. I know, because it's happened in my life. And I'd like to think this, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd like to think that because of my time spent with Ed, that, that I've not had to experience some of the lessons that he had to learn the hard way. That I've slowly, maybe just a little bit, gained some maturity that that I wouldn't have if I just hung around people my age. And then when you do hang around people your age, they're like, where, where did he come from, right? Young people, you can have that. But in a church, it's such a beautiful way for that to happen. It's such a beautiful environment for those relationships to happen. The church is where this stuff can happen. And it's where God's created it to happen. And it's a beautiful adornment of the gospel to the rest of the world. Now I say this throughout the, the sermon. We've talked about adorning the gospel. Adorning the gospel itself. Why are we adorning the gospel? Well, because the gospel is the good news that the world needs. The gospel is how people become saved. Not only from sin, but from hell. 
The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ took the punishment for your sins. But that can only be applied to you if you give your life to Him. And so the question this morning for all of us is this. Do you want to obey the gospel? Do you want to be free of your sin? Do you want to have the power to live a life of self-control? And all the rest of those things. Do you want to suffer for your own sins in eternity? Or do you want to have Jesus take it for you? Do you want to live life in heaven with God forever? Or do you want to spend eternity separated from Him? Or perhaps the more honest question is, are you willing to make the sacrifice and the choice to follow Jesus this morning? Jesus says in His Word that whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. If you want to gain life, you've got to give it away. If you want to gain your life, if you want to have the life that is truly life, you've got to give it up. It's it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense, only it makes total sense. When you do it, when you give your life to Jesus, it's not easy. It's not easy coming to the point to where you say, I'm ready to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Christ. I'm ready to give up control. It's really hard to get to that point. But once you do, I'm here to tell you, it's like the, the scales fall from your eyes, just like Paul when Ananias came to visit him. And all of a sudden you're like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I do this years before? Come to Jesus before it's too late. Don't wait Give your heart and your life to Christ and be sure of what's going to happen to you when it's your time to go. When Jesus returns, you can know where you will spend eternity. Don't wait. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Jesus. He is the reason for everything we're doing here. He's the reason we can pray to You. He's the only reason we can be right with You We can call ourselves Your children. He is our shelter in the time of storm. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And He is the only way to be saved. God, we pledge allegiance today to Your Son, Jesus. And we give Him our lives all over again for those of us who have. But God, for those of us who haven't, for those who do not yet know with certainty that they are right with You, I pray that You would lay this heavy on their hearts, and then they could not have peace until they give their lives to Jesus. They could not have peace until they know their sins have been taken care of. Their sins have been wiped away and they've been made right with You, and their place in eternity has been reserved. I pray that this morning, God. Work in people's hearts. Convict us with Your Word. Thank you for your word to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.